Support for the Cultural Class Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology development to provide you the best tools for your grooming experiences. In essence, this is a high-tech pubic shaver for men and women. While living the quarantine life, it might be difficult for most of us to pay attention to personal hygiene. This is because everyone is indoors, you know, it's difficult to find a barber. However, with Manscaped, you don't need to let your groin area look like your beard, especially if you have a significant other that you stay with or you're close to. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. The Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created and has just released the new and improved Lawnmower 3.0. The third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents. When I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes so you can take a longer shave. I mean, the shaver is also water resistant so you can groom yourself in the shower. And when I say groom yourself, I mean shave. Manscaped was kind enough to send me a box and I have it right here. One of the coolest features is the LED lights, which illuminates the groin area or the grooming area for a closer, more precise trimming. Now you have a light on the trimmer so you can see what you're doing while you're trimming. So you can get all those hidden errors, you know what I mean. They've also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology. This means it's not loud. No one knows what you're doing. Trim that junk of yours. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code CULTURECLASS at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Lady listeners, this will be a great gift for your guys as well. If you're thinking about what to get your husband or your boyfriend or your significant other, you can get him a lawnmower 3.0. Just go to manscaped.com and use the promo code CULTURECLASS while checking out to get 20% off and free shipping. Once again, 20% off free shipping. Go to manscaped.com and use the code CULTURECLASS. Welcome to another edition of Culture Class Podcast, the podcast where we get to interact with people from different backgrounds and get to learn about cultures from around the world. Uh, my name is Nosa Yari, and welcome to yet another episode. Today, I have Priya Jindal on the podcast. How's it going, Priya? Really well. How are you doing, Nosa? I'm good. I'm good. I hope I got your last name correctly, the pronunciation. Yep. Spot on. Got it. Got it. And you're in DC at the moment? I am based in DC. Yes. How's the summer in D.C.? Is it, is it humid yet? It is typical. It's quite humid. We were lucky last week to have some rain, but back to normal this week. Got it. Got it. I lived in D.C. for two years, so I know how the summers over there can yeah. be. Uh, it's not any better over here in Colorado. It's pretty hot. Um, so but we're just trying to you know, survive the whole work from home situation. <laughs> so, yeah. so, far, so you find it easy working from home typically? Does your job permit you to easily work from home? Um, yeah. So I've got my full-time job, which I do still go into the office for, and then I've got a side hustle. And for that, it's been really nice to have time at home and work from home. Nice, nice. And Priya, uh, we'll, we'll get to talk about, I mean, you, you've traveled to a lot of places and, you know, uh, your full-time job, you know, takes you to a bunch of countries and we'll get to talk about that. Um, but first, let's talk about your background and where you're from. So I looked up your profile on LinkedIn. You went to Ohio State. 
you, you, you work for the Foreign Service for a while or are, are working for the Foreign Service and you're the founder of Nextpot, which is like a HR consulting company. Uh, but let's talk about you growing up as a kid. What state did you grow up? Did you grow up in the U.S.? How are your parents like uh, growing up? Yeah. So I am the child of immigrants. Um, we evident by my name. Um, so both of my parents uh, came from India. One came when they were 17 and the other when they were 21. So my dad finished high school here. Uh, my mother came after she did university. So I was born in Ohio, but then my dad joined the U.S. Air Force. So I left these states. Uh, we lived in Mississippi for a while and then went to Germany and then came back. So the bulk of my growing up was in Ohio, but some pretty formative experiences abroad and internationally. So traveled to India, traveled to Europe as a child, and that really sort of set the tone for what I would choose to pursue later. What, which uh, one of those countries do you have the most memorable experience uh, growing up as a kid? I think I probably have the most memories from Germany because we lived there the longest and the trips to India were much shorter. Got it, got it. And I would say like it was difficult to place your accent because obviously you're, you're a well-traveled individual, so you kind of like maybe have a mesh of accent. But has anyone ever told you that before that it's difficult to place where you're from uh, due to your accent? So I think most people in Ohio and Columbus, which is where I'm from, uh, they pride themselves on our accent and that it is understandable. Um, but only from Ohio have people said that they think I'm from another city in Ohio. Uh, outside of that, it's pretty rare. Uh, I think usually if people hear me and don't see me, they really have no idea where I might be from. <laughs> Got it, got it, got it. And you did all that. You went to Ohio State. How was it like, you know, going to school in Ohio? I mean, you did grow up in Ohio, so I'd imagine there wasn't a lot of culture shock. But given that your parents were from another country, did you have that kind of dual life where at home it was a certain thing, observing certain rituals or, you know, religion and the school was like a different thing, like a typical immigrant story kind of thing? Yeah, I think there was definitely a lot of code switching, even though my background is international relations. So I actually lived at home. And that, I think, is coming from sort of this sensibility uh, growing up in an immigrant family of saving your resources for when you might need them. And so I lived at home, commuted to school, uh, which, you know, gave me a very different uh, perspective on what school was like. I remember being very frustrated when people would tell me about how independent they were because they lived on campus. And then we would walk through like, okay, well, what do you take care of? And they're like, oh, well, I just go home and my mom does my laundry. And I was just like, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't understand how that's independent. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> but yeah, we, so, we, we have that, right? Um, yeah. a bunch of, I mean, it was a culture shock to me as well. I mean, while I was at American, uh, I was a graduate student of ambassador for a few months. So what we did was to reach out to prospective graduate students and, you know, um, who are interested in attending university and explain to them from a student perspective, hey, this is how it is. Some of them actually book tours on campus to like go around the school to, you know, check it out, see if they'll be interested in the scenery and whatnot. And we're also in charge of giving tours. And what surprised me coming from a different country was that some of those tours were with the prospective students and their parents, like both mom and dad. I was like, wait, this isn't undergraduate. Like this is graduate school. Like you've graduated from undergraduate thinking about coming to graduate school. I'm like, you kind of still need your parents to, I mean, I might be wrong. Maybe it's just a different culture, but I'm like, why do you still need your parents to be here on the tour? Like who's making the decision here? You know, that kind of thing. So, but um, yeah. 
just relatable to your story uh, um, anyway. What about the town of Ohio itself? What's fun to do? Um, I'm sorry, the state of Ohio. Um, what's fun? Did you grow up in Columbus, Columbus? I grew up in an outskirt of Columbus. I was born in Columbus, and that's where my extended family lived. Um, so it's that's where I say I'm from. Well, what's the typical thing to do in Ohio? I mean, I was talking to someone from, um, I think it was Louisiana, and um, she was explaining to me about how the funeral procession is in in states like that, where you know the front of the line in a funeral procession is kind of like those in mourning, you know, uh, you know, mourning for the bereaved, and kind of like you know following the casket. And then there's the back line that's like celebration, you know, blowing trumpets, beating the drums, kind of like real Southern. Uh, is there anything unique to, I would say, maybe Columbus or Ohio in general uh, that maybe the rest of us are not typically aware of? I think what everybody's aware of is Cedar Point um, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, Columbus is, is relatively, um, it's actually biggest by population, but it, it has a greater uh, dispersal than uh Cincinnati or Cleveland. So it's not as familiar to people. It is the seat of government. Um, Ready Player One was set there. <laughs> oh, really? Um, yeah, as well as a book I'm currently reading um, where it's the state of, it's the seat of government. Oh, wait, um, so Ready, Ready Player One was a book? I just thought it was a movie yeah. with Spielberg. Oh, yeah. really? Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because for someone to come up with that script, all of a sudden, like, <laughs> the last time I saw someone come up with a script like that was like the Wachowski brothers with The Matrix or something. Right. But yeah. 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 So um, so Columbus is known for those things. So Columbus is, is the, um, we aren't the food capital of the world, but a lot of companies test out new products in the city because we are a microcosm demographically of the entire country. So it's a really interesting oh, wow. place to grow up. Um, and so you learn, you just get access to things that no one else has. So when we would, when we were kids, we would travel out to see family in like Kansas and we'd be like, okay, we're going to go, you know, to whatever chain or restaurant and ask for this thing. And they didn't have it. And we were like, what do you mean you don't have it? Um, so it is, it is a really weird place where you see things sort of test and die or get sent to the rest of the country. Interesting. Interesting. You know, it's funny how, you know, people from outside the U.S. get to interact with cities in the U.S. Like me in particular, like all my stuff was from music. I was like, okay, mm -hmm. Bow Wow is from Columbus, Ohio. Obviously, all the rappers in New York are shouting out their specific boroughs, Brooklyn, Manhattan, Staten Island, and all that stuff. So that's, that's how we get to know these states before these states. And when we actually get to come here, uh, or some of us get to come here and see these places, I'm like, oh, okay. I remember when I went to Nashville, Tennessee, and saw the Grammy Museum. I was like, oh, this is where like the birthplace of country, you know, from all yeah. the country songs my dad had played kind of like growing up. Um, but you talk, you talk about, you know, your family being from India, you had other extended family in Kansas City and maybe other parts of the U.S. Did being born to immigrant parents kind of like pique your interest in international relations coming up? Like how did that whole journey, you getting into like being interested like in like international relations and things like that? Yeah, I think a big part of it was growing up overseas and uh, going to a DOD school and getting a sense of the different types of... DOD is Department of Defense, right? Yes. So mm. my dad was Air Force. Um, and so coming in and just sort of getting a sense of the diversity within the country and what that meant. So um, we were there right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and uh, right at the beginning of the Gulf War. And oh, I wow. think... I think when you are shaped by world events because you are living in a place where they are happening or your 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 parents could be deployed, um, 
it leaves a really strong mark on, okay, what, what is going on, you know? So Israel, Palestine, I remember being really young and being like, all right, I'm going to solve this as like a 10 year old, oh, you know, wow. which Do you tell anyone about that plan? <laughs> no, no, uh, now I know better if, if those folks could not have done it. I'm not certain I could have either, but um, yeah, I think your sense of global, uh, of your space as a global citizen is really shaped by the experiences of living in these when you're young. Yeah, I mean, I can totally relate. It's like a different, like I grew up with, to, a, to a military father too. My dad was in the Nigerian Air Force and we went all around the place uh, to um, um, states within Nigeria and he was deployed to other countries in Africa as well. It's just a different bond between army brats or military brats. Like you have a different view of the world because it's like two different worlds. The outside world is there then there, there are certain, you know, codes or whatever or culture that you know living in a military family particularly when your either of your parents are deployed that that you guys uh kind of like live by um so what uh, obviously your dad was in the air force so maybe you should you would have known about the foreign service um kind of like early on and things like that but from what i understand that it's a very tough group to get into like to be a, like a foreign service officer like let, let's start from the beginning what is a foreign service officer just for the benefit of people who might be listening to this because a bunch of people who listen to these are immigrants as well and some people are listening in different countries and might be interested in coming to the u.s you want to explain who a foreign service officer is and how to get a job as a foreign service officer sure so i think in general um the easiest way to explain it for the broadest audience is a foreign service officer in the u.s is somebody who normally is working at an embassy, a U.S. embassy overseas. So in the U.S., it's the Department of State for whom you work, but for most countries, it would be your Ministry of Foreign Affairs officers. Uh, so that's the equivalency. Um, so the Foreign Service uh, entry is really challenging. Uh, I don't. I know very few Super people who have passed it on their first try. Um, so it's a it's a written exam. Uh, I want to say it was three or four hours. It's been quite some time since I took it. Um, followed up by an oral exam. So if you pass the written, you're invited to an oral exam. The oral exam is basically a full day of um, testing various aspects of what you would do on the job. Uh, so by virtue of the written exam, which has some pretty wild questions and that they just aren't things, you, you know, like no examples, one looks at a examples. map. Yeah, no one looks at a map without the full the full globe, right? Like you look at the entire world map and then you're like, oh, this country is here, that country is there. That's a really contextual based question. Mm. They will just pull out the shape of a country and be like, which country is it? And you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> Right? And like, that's just like, you only know that maybe for your country, right? Or like wherever you've lived or something. It's just, it was a little yeah. bit, so it's very esoteric. So obviously the people we recruit end up being very, very smart, but kind of also like, savant-ish, you know, in their disposition. So um, you take orals and that's much more practical in terms of taking information, synthesizing it, presenting it, uh, briefing it, et cetera. And then based on all of that, even if you pass that, you just go on a list and it, then it's really about circumstance. So it's really about, do we need somebody and how high up on the list are you? Um, and then- Oh, so, so they it, rank, they rank everyone. Yeah. Interesting. And that's based on your score, but also things like veteran status, languages, um, other sorts of experiences that they're trying to recruit for. And so if you only are allowed to stay on it for six months and then you drop off and you have to start over. Wait, so, what if they don't get anyone on the list in six months? Everyone has to start over? Yeah. 
interesting. It's interesting. You know, it's pretty tough because I had a friend while I was in D.C. who worked for Deloitte Federal. And he worked there for five years and he was already a senior consultant. And I thought he was going to be gunning for, I don't know how the rank is, maybe junior partner. I don't know what's after senior consultant, but, you know, he went into foreign service. I was like, wait, like, what's going on? Like, it was like, yeah, he's been trying this for like the last two or three years. You know, he finally got in. I was like, wait, is the foreign service that important? What what makes the foreign service so prestigious? Is it a pathway for um, if you have like ambitions in politics, it's like an easier way to get in because you've been knowledgeable about foreign service or it's just like a, a higher tier in government? Like, well, what is so uh, special about the foreign service? What makes it so prestigious? I mean, I guess it depends on how you perceive it, really. Um, my understanding and, and why you want to join, I think it's different for different people. Um, for me, it was really about, it is, if you if you study international studies, it's the, the most, um, it's the most robust application of that study, right? You are directly interacting with foreign governments uh, on policy issues. Mm. And so that for me, that was sort of the calling was that, you can go to other places and do other things. You could work for a think tank. You can work for many of the really excellent NGOs, which is actually where I started. Um, but if you really want to do foreign policy, you have to be at the policy table. And that's really where State Department sit. Got it. Got it. Okay. So as a member of the Foreign Service, uh, um, I don't know how much we, we can talk about this. And obviously, maybe, obviously we won't uh, talk about any kind of top secret issues, but you, you served in... Uh, uh, Myriad of countries. I mean, you were in Bamako, Mali, uh, the Philippines, uh, Islamabad, and Pakistan. Talk to me about your very first deployment. Was it a country you had been to before? What were your initial thoughts, you know, getting down from the plane and your first few days in that? Yeah, so Bamako was my first tour. Mm. And um, oh, they I call it a tour. Yes. Mm. I have a minor in French and it had been a really long time since I had used it. So showing up in French West Africa uh, two months after the coup was really eye-opening. So I had not been to, I had been to Egypt and that was it on the continent. And the opportunity came up to go to Mali and many, many of my friends thought I was going to Bali. Uh, so we had to clear out that misunderstanding. <laughs> That's funny. Typical. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, so I was like, well, you know, they told me, they were like, we don't think you're going to get this. I had to bid for it. Uh, but it was an immediate fill. I did get it. And I was like, this is great. You know, when else am I ever going to like actively go live in, in French West Africa? And I volunteered in India after university and it was very, um, it was very Gandhian in philosophy. So the idea I had, a, I had to do a lot on my own. I had to find my own housing, et cetera. So I was really excited to do this with somebody sort of footing the bill and supporting me through a great part of it. Um, so I, I remember arriving and I, I remember something happening on the plane. I don't remember that very well. I got picked up and I arrived in my, like we drove through the city, you land at night, like you do in all of, all of West Africa, uh, due to the heat. So we arrive and I got into my new house, you know, which is furnished with all the embassy furniture. And I remember laying in bed under my mosquito net and being like, what on earth did I get myself into? Because it was oh, just... a mosquito net first night. Was that your first oh, yeah. experience sleeping on a mosquito net or you had done that yeah. in other places? Okay. No. Um, yeah, but it was, it was more just like driving through this really sparsely 
vegetated land. I arrived in summer. And so, you know, it's not like it's, it's very lush in winter, but I didn't know that I just arrived at that time. So you and landed so just, during the day? I landed at night, at but night. so as okay. we drove through, you could sort of see what was out and stuff. And it was just, it wasn't that it was so radically different. It was just that it was so foreign. And then to operate in what was for me a second, or in this case, third language, um, and if we go through the rest of it in Pakistan, where um, where I speak Hindi, which is not the same as Urdu, but is functional on the ground, it's a to- it was just a totally different experience uh, because it. of that comfort. How, how did you go out there, either in you know Islamabad or Bamako or all the other places you went to? What was your initial? I mean, the first thing people like to try when they go to a new country is like the food. They go to like a restaurant and they're like. Let them experience this. What, what was it like for you? Can you remember what you had? Or did you even start with food? Did you start with music or something else? So when I arrived in Mali, so many people had left the country, period. I mean, mm. expats, locals, it didn't matter. If they could leave, they left uh, because of the coup and the uncertainty. Mm. And so it was just a really strange environment to walk into. Uh, and I'm also vegetarian. So when I explore food, oh. it's always a little a little different. <laughs> Is that for religious uh, reasons or just for personal reasons, health reasons or something? So it started off as religious. My parents are vegetarian. Uh, my grandmother was Jane. Um, but over time, it has become an ethical, societal, ecological issue uh, where I see the benefits uh, in terms of how I engage and the impact I have on the community around me. Um, but so I'm trying to remember, gosh, it's, it seems so long ago now what I did when I got to Bamako. I remember introducing myself around the embassy and I remember actually sitting in the cafeteria and because it had been so long since we had gotten new officers to the embassy, the ambassador, and if, if you are familiar with the foreign service environment or, or the policy environment here, very formal, right? Like diplomatic graces are a thing and you're trained in how to, how to engage with these people. And so I remember the ambassador when I met her down there and she learned that I was permanent and not just there temporarily. She like picked me up and hugged me and I was just like, I don't, <laughs> this isn't protocol. I don't know what to do. Well, welcome to Bamako now. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. Did you sharpen up your French? How long did you end up staying in Bamako? Yes. So I was there for two years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. My French did get better. Um, and it was, you know, I think my big takeaway, whether or not I remember what happened in the beginning was just the people and, and how, how giving they were. I remember struggling with this because, um, one, you know, this is also during Occupy Wall Street. So I was a, I was a one percenter in Bamako. I was living a very different lifestyle than everybody who had been left post coup. Mm. And that disconnect going from my last overseas experience in a really Gandhian and volunteerism effort was really challenging to now think about my identity as a diplomat. Um, and then to relate to people who were really and truly dealing with the impact, the economic impacts of the coup. And what does it mean to feed your family? Uh, and, and that was, I was just like, I don't know how to have this conversation because I've been so lucky that my conversations to date have been really philosophical about books and that's just not, it doesn't matter in the real world, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, I think that was mm-hmm. really eye-opening. And for them to be willing to invite me into that and let me experience and understand it, uh, which is, you know, it's a burden on them really, was I'm just really grateful for, for how welcoming and giving uh, I found the people. Do you feel like more and more Americans uh, have to have 
I, I don't want to say a similar experience, but maybe a similar experience. Uh, it may, may not be necessarily traveling to another country, but having some kind of interaction with other cultures and even other states, because some people just grow up in their block on, I don't know, wherever they're from, and they didn't even get to see the full state. So if they grow up in Columbus, for instance, they don't get to go to Cincinnati or go to the, these right. other places. And you can speak to this from anecdotally, from what I understand, like less than 50% of the U.S. population actually own international passports. So there's not a lot of traveling. And when there is, it's probably like Mexico or Hawaii or, you know, somewhere close. Uh, People don't really go far. Do you think there's value in kind of like getting out there and really seeing what people are about, like having an experience outside your own experience? It might not even be international. It even might be locally, but, you know, somewhere different from what you have. Do you think that makes for a better pro? approach to your professional life and a better understanding of just uh, humanity in general. Yeah, I think when you expand your perspective, it inherently helps you see alternatives professionally, personally, whatever the case may be. I do think that that can be done locally. You know, um, there's this Mexican writer who wrote To Hell With Good Intentions, and it's very much directed at the Peace Corps and how it does its work overseas. But his point is, why aren't you doing this locally? Mm. Why is it easier for you to step into a foreign environment to help somebody and be invited into their house and they take on this burden of teaching you when you could do that locally in your own language, which would be a lot more uncomfortable because the truths would be harder and more direct. Um, And I think that those are really eye-opening experiences, uh, whether that's international or local, and and really important to understanding what the world looks like. I facilitated a conversation this morning and somebody said, due to the global nature of the pandemic, more people are seeing what does it look like to respond to this in different countries and maybe reassessing their own perspective of their countries. Um, And I think that that's a big part of it is just like there are alternative ways of doing that things. And once we learn about them, then it opens our own perspective to to examine new ways of doing things. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, So you you left Bamako after two years. Uh, Was Philippines, was Manila your your next stop? Yes. Yeah. Manila is another is another city I got to know through hip hop. There was this bar that a rapper, a Nigerian rapper, uh quoted who was like, even in the Philippines, you'll never find a man Ila. So it was like <laughs> that was a couple of years ago, but it's, it's strange how I assimilate things <laughs> through, yeah, no, that's awesome. through music. But well, how was Manila for you? Uh was it different from um how different was it uh from Bamako? Um what, what language do they speak in the Philippines? So there's a lot of them. It's uh, okay. an island archipelago, but um the primary one in northern Philippines, Luzon, which is where I was, is Tagalog. Tagalog? Yeah. Oh, okay. How long but did it's you... It's an interesting mix of like English, Spanish, and um, and local indigenous languages. Got it. Got it. How, how long did you spend uh, in the Philippines? I was there also for two years. For two years. Oh, okay. So is that the typical tour, like two years per tour or... So that's depends? for your first couple. It's usually two. And then mm. we have priority posts, priority um, personnel posts, which are one year. Those are like the Afghanistans, Pakistans. And then we've got uh, three-year posts. And so generally, once you've done your first two and sort of gotten the experience, then you'll go into a three-year post. Got it. Got it. Have you ever like um, 
I can imagine like Americans are loved in quite a number of countries, but not all countries, I would imagine. Um, have you ever had uh, faced some kind of animosity I mean, like you in particular? Um, and this is kind of like two questions in one. So here being in, in America, I mean, you're American, you were born here. However, both your parents were Indian and, you know, maybe someone looking at you might just assume, oh, you know, she's Indian, not Indian American or American. And have you faced like some kind of prejudice or discrimination here in America and then going abroad to represent your country and facing additional discrimination being American in a foreign country? Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, that question. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a big identity question, right? Um, mm-hmm. What does it feel like and how do you respond to it? So, um, yes, <laughs> with respect to how I face discrimination with it. Um, and some of it is really, you know, at this moment where we're really exploring it as a country, some of it I didn't even realize was happening until much later. So uh, I remember really distinctly after 9-11, um, you know, the U.S., did not have the same perspective on the world that it does now. Um, so I I remember my family and I being really conscientious about not wearing any type of thing that could be construed as Indian outside. Mm. We were really deliberate about wearing pants and t-shirts um, and not wearing longer tunics or anything. Um, and that was really because we, you know, we saw the violence. We saw we saw hate crimes after 9-11 towards people of color. Um it wasn't ever stated at the time. It was really just like looks, right? It wasn't quite as um, vocal as it might be in, in the dialogue today. So a lot of it was that, uh, you know, I worked in state government for a long time and I actually never faced it there. It was very uh, equitable in that. So going overseas was interesting because no one ever thinks I'm American. I think when people in the rest of the world envision American, they envision you know, sort of a 1950s, uh, pretty homogenous culture. Mm, thank and, you, Hollywood. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, so I remember in Bamako, I would always be like, all right, where do you think I'm from? You know, because I would be going to the French club or wherever and they would ask. And so I would ask the guys, I was like, where do you think? And I would get, I would get everything. I'd get Cuban, Argentinian, Spanish, where, Greek, whatever really, you know, would sort of work. And I, I do look ethnically vague, so I don't usually fit in. Um, even in the U.S., people speak to me in Spanish all the time. Um, so so I, I am aware that I sort of blend in. The Philippines was really unique, though, because people thought I was Filipina. And I do not look Filipina. <laughs> um, and it was really funny because they would be like, oh, well, we just assumed you're from the South. Or if I was in the South, they'd be like, oh, you're just from the North. And it's, mm. you know, in India, it was really interesting because there, I'm obviously Indian American, but they would always see me as just American. Mm. And in the US, I was never just American. That's what it is. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. There, there's that disconnect between, I think, what's the Indian name for? Is it Desi? Like the diaspora? Yeah. Uh, so there's that disconnect. Nigeria as well. It's like, and it's funny because I grew up in Nigeria for the first 26 years of my life. And it's, I had that misconception like anyone who came from home and maybe my name now if, if I say my name is Nosa and my dad's here we say Nosa and my Nigerian aunt is like your name is not Nosa it's Nosa you know mm. that kind of thing so it's like oh you know you're not Nigerian uh you know they, they tend to classify you as more American not Indian or Nigerian and there tend to be that disconnect especially when a lot of people in the past who are Nigerian American go back with some kind of savior mentality like oh you know I'm American, I'm 
cultured, air quotes, I'm here to implement things and change things without actually getting to know. Um, so th- there's always that distrust that, oh, you know, you left us for a better place and now you're coming back and you think you have all the answers. Is it kind of like the same thing I would assume in India as well? Yeah, I don't know if it's quite that. Um, some of it, I, you know, I don't know, we'd have to ask them and there's a billion of them. So I think it's mm. every every perspective under the sun. Um but I think there's, yeah, I think there's just a range of sort of, you know, and I wasn't, I wasn't born there. I didn't leave. So I think some of it is also just, well, you don't have the real perspective on it, you know? And, and I think that was a big reason I went back uh, for a year by myself to, to live and work and learn. Um, and it was very much with the mindset of what, what is happening and why does it work? Um, cause you don't want to break something that works and you don't really know why it works. I think clothing is such a good example of this, right? Like when I see people wearing jeans, literally anywhere outside of like the North, the far North where it is cold, it mm. just doesn't make sense. I'm like, it is too hot to wear jeans. Right. And like, whatever you normally wear, like if you're in the desert and you're wearing like, I don't know, a kaftan, that makes sense because it is hot <laughs> and that you need the air to flow through. Mm-hmm. Um, in India, you know, we tend to wear looser clothes as well. So if it is hot, it does not make sense to put yourself on with jeans. And I think um, that's always sort of my analogy of where you have to understand what is what is working and why. Why, why is this context Context is really important and understanding that context determines what you do next. Most definitely, most definitely. I mean, just touching on the fashion subject, like it's considered disrespectful to wear shorts to certain places in Nigeria. Like if you wear shorts, uh, maybe meet with an elder or something like, well, like you don't respect me. You're just wearing shorts. You're not doing anything. But, you know, if you come with that mentality that, you know, during the summer in the U.S., everyone wears shorts, you take shorts as a tourist (laughs) back home, you know, you might run into something but you know i just decided to, to touch on that based on your jeans analogy um what what do you do like personally uh, i know you, you have like a, a side hustle with Nextpad, and we're going to get to that in a second uh, but what do you do for fun like does your job even permit you time to have fun between your job and like your personal uh project or your business like yeah i know you talked about reading i'm sure uh you read a couple of books but what else do you do you find time for yeah so i'm a pretty voracious reader um i have a fairly active workout regimen um which i do enjoy i didn't i didn't realize how much i enjoy strength Define training. fairly active three times a day four times a week no once a month? Uh, six days a week, oh, but wow. once a day. Yes. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> Respect. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, I've found that I really have started to enjoy strength training, um, which I didn't really expect. Um, What's that? I bake strength training just in terms of like building up my strength so that I, I'm like trying to hit a higher and higher weight um, in terms of what I'm lifting, not how much I weigh. <laughs> Got it. Um, and then I love baking. Um, I'm actually banned from baking right now because my partner and I are trying to lose weight and I bake too much. Um, but I really like the, and that's something I really do overseas a lot as well, because I like the immediate gratification. Mm. So when you're doing foreign policy work, you just don't know what's going to turn out from it and you leave after some time. Whereas with baking, like you have a result in an hour and you know whether or not you did it right. Um, And then you need, you know, spreading that joy. And then I cook a fair bit. I dance. Um, I've danced since I was a child. Oh, nice. And then, yeah, and that's with, um, it was Indian dance. And then lastly, I meditate. So I do two hours a day of meditation. 
Well, that's a whole lot. Like, I, I think I just <laughs> step up my game here. <laughs> I, I, I kind of like do the lazy things. Oh, watch documentaries, read, listen to podcasts, anything physical. I'm like, do I have to, you know, which is ironic because I live in Colorado and the, the thing here is hiking. Like people go on right. hikes for first dates. I'm like, what the, like, I need to, we need to be married or something <laughs> to go on a, to go on a hike. But, um, Speaking of relationships and, you know, feel free not to answer this question if you consider it personal. Like you talked about your partner. Um, is he or she like uh, from the same cultural background as you? And uh, if not, like how is that playing out like in your family situation? Yeah. So um, so he's African-American. Uh, to your point, our second date was rock climbing. Um, <laughs> 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 Our Wait, first one was trivia, if it helps. Uh, we, it was indoors. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, we do go outdoors, but not very often. It's just, it's so hot, and I get heat exhaustion very quickly post-Molly. So, um, so he's African-American, he's from Georgia, um, but he did Peace Corps in Nepal. So he has mm. a sensibility regarding South Asian cultures. Um, and that was interesting. I, you know... The Indian community has plenty of racism in, in itself as well. And so I was kind of hesitant, but there were a lot of things uh, when I met him that I was like, There's, there are things here that align really, really well. We both love dancing. Um, my mindfulness practice is very closely related to things he believes in, even if they're framed differently. Um, so I was a little bit worried about that with my family, but he's been totally taken in. Uh, they definitely appreciate him. Um, his family has completely taken me in, um, nice. and they've got more diversity on their in their family for sure. But yeah, it's been really, it's one of the things we've talked about a lot, not necessarily on the culture front, uh, so much as the religion uh, front, mm. because I'm sort of a religious, uh, and he is Southern really? Catholic. Yeah. From an Indian family? How is that even possible? <laughs> <laughs> How many scoldings did you get from your, <laughs> from your dad for that? Like, that's, that's rare. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I have a very strong spiritual practice, obviously, with meditation. Mm. And my meditation practice, my grandmother actually taught the type of meditation I do. And so, and that was my dad's mother. And so I think I sort of had backing. I had matriarchal backing um, for the path that I've taken. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't discount any of it. Um, so if they want to go to temple, I'll, I'll go. Um, I actually, I think, I think every religion, um, every practice has, has the truth in it. It's just how it's framed. Mm. And so to me, my mindfulness and meditation practice are a more universal framing which mm. is why I appreciate that. But I can find it in any of these other practices. You know what? That's well said. And I agree because uh, just two weeks ago, I was talking to someone who grew up uh, Arya Samaji, which is it's not a religion. It's more like a movement, uh, I think, in Northern India. It originated like in 1875. And I'm Christian. And, you know, a bunch of things you were saying I could relate. I was like, this isn't, you know, that different. Like the way it's delivered and, you know, some of uh, the, the rituals and all that are different. But some of the core things around the religion is not that different. So maybe it's just miscommunication at the end of the day. And I wish more and more people would spend more time um, focusing on the core of religions, which most times centers on love and loving, you know, your neighbor and things like that, than, you know, those dogmatic practices that were, you know, uh, formulated 
thousands of years ago and are still required to be observed in a totally different um, kind of society. Um, yeah. Let's talk about your side hustle, Nextpat. That's a very interesting name, play on expat, obviously. Um, what made you want to like have your own consultancy, brainchild kind of thing? And what is it that Nextpat does? Yeah, so Nextpat is a play on expat and next. So it's what's next for an expat. Um, and it really came out of my India experience. So I went to India. I went with a program that gave us a one-month orientation. So, you know, you learned about the philosophy, about culture, et cetera, language, uh, and you went, did your work, and then you came home. And I came home and I, it wasn't even reverse culture shock. It was just straight culture shock. I was just like, who am I? What is this? You know, I, I remember somebody was telling me she wanted to go overseas and help people and I lost my mind. This goes to our earlier conversation where I was just like, you literally have a background in political science. Like that is a useless degree, which is also my degree for in full disclosure. Like, how are you going to help people? Like with what? Uh, you have no real context or life really experience behind you. I was young and even I didn't have life experience, but um, that was my response. And that it was just so wildly uncalibrated. Um, I was really overwhelmed by choice. I remember coming home from a study abroad trip and just thinking that we lived in mansions, you know? And I was just like, what is the impact I'm having on my environment and how do I align that with what I now believe based on this experience overseas? So in India, I think I had four pairs, maybe six pairs of clothes and that's enough. You know, I lived in the South. I could, I could get away with that. And I came home. Remember, I'm from Ohio in September, which is a gorgeous time of year. And I got rid of all my stuff. And my mother was like, this is so stupid. She was like, it's going to get cold and you're going to need these things. And I was like, it's going to be fine. Like, we'll just go in our cars. Like, we have so much luxury here. Are you an you only child? No, I'm one of three. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> but I'm the oldest. And so I, you know, it gets to October and it's freezing. And hmm. I was like, oh, my mom is right. I really do need more. And so trying to figure out how my values had changed but what did that mean in a context I was familiar with, but didn't know how to adapt it to? And so that's really where the idea came from, was that a lot of people have experiences where they go expand their perspective, like we were talking about earlier, but they come back and don't always know how to, how to live a life aligned with those perspectives in a place that they used to live. Professionally, personally, yeah. Mm whatever the case may be. So, um, so that's what I do. So I support um, organizations in retaining their employees um, because many of their employees who are sent abroad have a similar experience and then come back and feel underutilized or misaligned. So I work with them to help them retain those employees who are more likely to just leave and just go leave. back overseas. Um, oh, but I also work with that? them directly. Like go back overseas? Oh, interesting. Yeah. How do you do that? What kind of exercises? I would imagine there has to be like if I just just me talking out of the blue, maybe some psychological um, exercises to kind of like reorient them with like the U.S. environment, or maybe that's not necessary. Like, what kind of exercises do you do you perform in carrying out your duties or your consulting assignments? Yeah. So with with the HR folks, it's really about. Um, 
creating a pipeline for their returnees. So we do a couple of things with them. The first is that we sit down and we examine whether or not they have a retention problem and then what their goals are. And then the the next thing we do is we say, okay, what are the best practices that you need to start implementing that are, you know, depending on how much they want to spend. So one of the easiest things for people to do is to have communication, right? So they're off in the world and they come home and they're like, okay, and now you're going to go do what you were doing before. And they were like, wait, you just invested in me a lot to mm. send me and my family overseas and then bring me back. And now you're going to have me do the same thing. Like, what about all these skills I just learned? How am I going to apply them? So having a real professional plan for them and then communicating that so that they understand what's going on. And then the second thing we do is we do orientations and workshops. So I was talking about wanting a reorientation. So I created a reorientation and we walk through things like what is reverse culture shock? What does it mean? Reverse um, what are you- culture shock. Yeah. Mm. What are you feeling and is that normal? Most likely it is. Um, and then how do you manage it? So what are the, the ideas on the mindfulness side, well-being to, to take the stuff that you've learned and then use it in your life? So some of that is building community, understanding what your values are now, um, expectations, management, et cetera. We do those. We can do those as workshops or an orientation. And then I do coaching. So I'll do one-on-one work with individuals and say, okay, you're transitioning what feels like it's misaligned and how do we resolve that? How tough does that get in trying to do that? Because human beings are are so dynamic, right? And it's almost like you go to all these places. I can take oil workers, for instance, like oil workers travel a lot. They go abroad and it's kind of almost like the third eye is open and they're coming back to the US and you're trying to work with them one-on-one. How long does it take for your clients to be as closely realigned, uh, you know, to, to address the reverse culture shock for a typical client? Yeah, so it really depends on if they come to me directly right? Because that's sort of a self-select self-awareness. So it's going to take them a little bit shorter time. Um, I usually want them to spend at least six sessions with me, but it usually takes about 10. Um, And and that's like a session a week or? Weekly or bi-weekly. It just depends on what makes the most sense for them. So people who are, you know, if you're trying to move and get things unpacked, you might not have the time to do it weekly and that's fine. Mm. Um, And then... For the clients who are sort of like forced into it, in air quotes, um, by their company, it, it may take longer because it's not, they aren't really realizing it. So I think it takes them, you know, a couple of sessions before they're like, oh, this is why I'm feeling this way. And Got that there it. are resources for it, right? Like they may not want to admit it. They're like, I can tough it out. Um, it shouldn't be this hard. And so sometimes it's just that education piece that takes some time. Let me ask you this question. Um, Being that you run a business, I mean, it is a business after all that you're doing and you get paid for it. Like, so growing up, uh, let me not even say growing up, the popular thing is do something you're passionate about. But there's this school of thought that that has been coming up lately in the last few years that that says passion doesn't really matter. Like uh, sometimes when you do something you're passionate about, you might get blinded. Like, you know, you might be passionate about music or, you know, being a, a musician or rapper or something, but you, you're you not really making money and you haven't made money for the last 10 years, but you're still going out to these clubs and playing blindly because you're passionate about it. Uh, another school of thought says, look, just look for where there's a need. And even if you have no passion, your English literature uh, major and it's something engineering that... So far, you find a way to fulfill that need directly or use other people to fulfill that need, then there's a business. Like, what's the balance for you? Obviously, you have experience in international relations. You are passionate about, you know, the environment and other people and things like that. In your opinion, how how important is passion 
in the 21st post-COVID business environment in starting a business? That's a good question. I think if you are starting your own business, the level of hustle involved requires you to care uh, because it's just exhausting, right? So when you're looking at two, three years in, you're still in development stage. And that, the you know, I work full time. So for me to stay present with what I want to do, I have to care about it. Mm. Uh, that's for me. That's a, that's my personality. I, if I didn't care, I would just quit and like find time to do other interesting things, um, or read more. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I find it necessary for me, but I do think that if you have a passion, you have to figure out how you're going to make it profitable if it, if it's for a business, right? So it has to address a need beyond what, whatever you see. So that's where like the market research and the data gathering comes into play. So what does this look like? And then never be attached to the initial idea in such a Mm, way. That's important. Learn to pivot. Yeah. Mm. Learn to pivot. Exactly. So we actually started, as I said, with the repatriation and that's still where we put a lot of our focus, but we've changed our tagline to cultural transition to familiar environments. Why? Because in the post-COVID world, when you go back to work, that's a really familiar environment and the culture has changed because you just spent six months at home. Mm. Um, and how do you create and establish a new culture when you've changed? Because maybe you've been at home and you're like, I actually don't care about this as much as I care about watching my kids grow up. Mm. Right. And how do I balance that out? Because I still got to earn that paycheck. Um, and so, yeah, so it, it's still in the same line, but it is, it is a slight pivot for us. Okay. Okay. That's cool. I mean, where are times ahead post COVID, you know, God help us, but what do you want to do, man? Like, what do you see yourself doing in the future? Um, Do you have like this grand vision? It might not necessarily be a grand vision, like what you see yourself doing. It might be specific, or it might just be general to a region or an industry or something. Uh, What do you see yourself doing in say 10, 20 years uh, beside climbing rocks and, you know, (laughs) other fun stuff? Yeah. 10 or 20 years from now. I don't know. I, if we don't have flying cars, which were promised to me in 2000, I'm going to be pretty disappointed. <laughs> what um, was that, a space odyssey or what was the, no, that? Was 2001. I feel like it was like when I was a kid, I remember people being like, oh yeah, by 2000, we'll definitely have flying yeah, cars. Two, 2000 right? was a very unique, uh, it was just a unique number, different from the 90s. So people just yeah. thought a lot of things would change. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we're 20 years past that. Um, no, I, I, I don't have a grand vision. Um, I used to be a big, planner. Uh, I think that's how you get into the foreign service. Um, this time has been really amazing to sit back and reflect and start telling the narrative of my own story to get a sense of where maybe it's going. I think international living and travel will definitely continue to be a part of it. Um, but I don't know. At one point I had wanted NextPat to grow into this giant thing. Um, I don't know that it's, I don't know that I have the bandwidth for it or that's really what I want or envision anymore. Uh, so I see a lot of partnerships. I see a lot of collaboration with people who are in the well-being, uh, mental wellness space, who understand, you know, organizational psychology, healthy workplaces, uh, and that's really. I'm just a part of that, and I think there's a lot of interesting work being done throughout that space. And I see us as supporting sort of these. How do we move as a society? to a more holistic workplace that isn't just focused on the bottom line. Got it. You're well, you're in the right city. Start from there. Yeah. <laughs> DC. Is, is there somewhere you've always dreamed of going to like that you haven't been to yet? Like a city or a country? 
Yes. Or even the planet, like you never know nowadays. It's true. That is true. Um, so I've always wanted to go to Antarctica. It is the only, mm-hmm. um, I was about to say planet now. Um, it's the only continent I haven't been to. So I'm about to get married. And I had originally proposed that we go to Antarctica and get married by the ship captain. But I'm glad we didn't plan that because COVID would have killed that. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've also always wanted to see the Northern Lights. Um, oh, you can find that in Alaska. Oh, Iceland. Yeah. Iceland should have a direct flight from Bregen Airport, I think. Yeah, I just haven't made it out yet. So mm. I've got some things on my bucket list. Um, hoping to hit, you know, Tibet has always been on my list. Um, Bhutan, just because it's anywhere that's like closed or isolated is always mm. really interesting to me. So I got to go to... thrill, huh? <laughs> yeah, I got to go to Myanmar. Um, wow, recently? In 2014. 15, 16, something oh, like that. Was the four or five years ago? There, uh, I can't remember. Yeah, so it was. It was just like you know, it'd been closed for for years and years and years, and so, yeah. and that's where the tradition that my meditation is from uh, came back out of. And so, it was just, it was amazing to me, you know, to see it really changed and shifted the way that I see what is the good life and what does it look like when a community can do alms um, because they care about something larger, you know, it's, it's, it's about not sweeping your porch, but sweeping the entire sidewalk. Um, Mm. and what does that look like? Wow. I love that analogy. Not just sweeping your porch, but sweeping the sidewalk. Hmm. Interesting. What's one practical, and I should have asked you this earlier, like whenever I I interview people who have like a a side project or business or service or product, something they do that brings in money uh, for the benefits of listeners who might have aspirations or who are currently entrepreneurs themselves, what's one practical thing you think has helped in your business that other people can replicate? So something actionable that, that, you know, it might be, you know, using Calendly more often or you use this software or use this system and it helps you uh, something that can help other people as well? So two things that I think are really important. The first piece of advice, actually somebody else gave me, but I pass it on to everybody because I think it's so useful. If you are doing any content development, a blog, a podcast, anything like that, get a pipeline in order, sit down at the beginning of the year, if you have control over it. Now, if you're doing interviews, it's a different thing. But if you have agency over it, you write down what you want to cover for the next I do it for a year. You can do it for six months, whatever the case may be. What it does is, and obviously it had to shift with COVID, but what it does is it takes the pressure of the like, okay, now what do I want to do every month or every two weeks or every week? And and you just know where you're going and that, and then you can get ahead of it. And then you've got more time to do all the other things that are really important in the business. Um, So that's the first one from a content development perspective. The second one is actually related to what we were talking about regarding passion versus need. When you're pursuing a passion and you aren't finding the need and you haven't yet pivoted, uh, it can be really tiring and you, you can be, become really defeated when you don't feel like you're making progress. So once a quarter, I send a note to my list of, of not subscribers, not this, these are just my supporters, the people who are my cheerleaders. I send them a note with what did I accomplish in the last three months? What am I hoping to do in the next three months and how can you help? Mm. And that has not only has it paid dividends because they find ways to help me, but your reflection of what you've done is going to be like, oh, maybe it wasn't a total waste of three months. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a really, it's really helpful when you're down in the dumps to be like, oh, 
actually I have been productive. I just don't see it today see, yeah. or this week. You know, that's particularly interesting, you know, for someone like me doing a podcast, like um, if you have like a content and I didn't necessarily start this as a business, even though I have ads and I was more like a passion thing because uh, I was doing it anyway informally. Um but I, I kind of kind of gauged that what you just said, uh, how I, my informal way of measuring that is how many family members or supporters, as you say, are still patronizing you. Because, you know, in the beginning, everyone wants to be nice. Oh, you know, pre-R started something. Okay, give me two copies or you have this book or whatever. But six months down the line, are they blocking you on Facebook or are they <laughs> still, you know, patronizing your product or service without even you reaching out. That means, oh, you're really fulfilling that need. And, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's really anecdotal because um, whatever service you're providing might not be for the demographic where your family members might sit into, but it's just, you know, like an informal way that I used to judge as well. Um, but yeah, thank you. This has really been a pretty interesting discussion. Um, at the end of the every episode, I like to give my guests a few minutes, say, uh, if there's a question or something I didn't ask you or something you really want to address. Uh, some people speak to their future self, want to document one or two thoughts, or some people just want to drop their emails or social media for listeners to reach out to them. Uh, you kind of have the floor uh, to do that before we end the episode. Yeah, um, I think this was really lovely. And thank you for the time uh, and the, the really excellent questions and conversation. Um, if, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, the website is www.nextpat, that's N-E-X-T-P-A-T dot U-S. And I'm Priya, P-R-I-Y-A at nextpat.us. Um, and we're at nextpat.us on Facebook and Instagram on LinkedIn. And I will be starting a YouTube channel on Thursday called hey. Thriving Expats. Yeah. Sorry, what's it called? Drop it again. Thriving expats. Thriving expats. And we're really going to be talking about like, how do you find the space to have mindfulness or recognize burnout, um, et cetera. So that'll be hopefully becoming a more diverse channel pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I look forward to it. And, you know, one thing this podcast does is, you know, we don't just interview people and let them go. So if you have anything uh, in the future, like I remember we interviewed Gada. I want to say that was... Uh, it must be over a year now, uh, but she was one of our earlier interviews and she ended up writing the book. So we had her back on. Uh, we've interviewed a couple of musicians. I'm going to a studio session on Saturday from uh, an artist I interviewed here in Colorado and, you know, she's producing the next project. I'm going to interview her again. So we like to see products and progress and we like to you know help you in our own little way to bring exposure to whatever it is you're doing. So hopefully keep in touch. Uh, we'll see what's what for the future. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks again. So it was really wonderful to talk with you. Most definitely. Most definitely. All right, guys. Uh, it's been another edition of Culture Class Podcast. If you want to go to our website, it's cultureclasspodcast.com. Uh, follow us at Culture Class Podcast everywhere. Send us an email, cultureclasspodcasts uh, at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. Uh, we'll have uh, links to Priya's website in the show notes. So you can just click on that and it'll take you to her page to see what she's up to. All right, guys. Till next time, be well. 